Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22 today. We're going to continue in our study through this book, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Title of the message is Truth or Consequences? Truth or Consequences. How many of you are old enough to remember the game show, Truth or Consequences? Everybody with gray hair raises their hand. Truth or, here's how old this game show is. Bob Barker used to host Truth or Consequences. This is before The Price is Right. So it was a long time ago. Premise of the game basically was that a question would be given. The contestants had uh, about two seconds to answer the question. And if they couldn't answer the question correctly, then they would suffer the consequences. And usually it was some sort of a, of a gag or some sort of a, a, of a skit that they had to do that made them look foolish. And, and that was the consequence. Well, truth or consequences is a way of life for us, isn't it? There, there is truth... And if you don't live according to the truth, then you have to suffer the consequences. I found that out painfully yesterday. Here's what happened to me yesterday. Um, my, uh, my daughter, Megan, uh, pregnant with her fourth child, uh, had uh, my, my grandson, Knox. She delivered last Sunday. Um, they had to induce her five weeks early because she had a diseased gallbladder. And, uh, and so she was having gallbladder attacks and she had, in fact, I- infection in her body and so they had to get her gallbladder out. Well, they couldn't get the gallbladder out until they got the baby out. So they induced her uh, to have the child. She, she gave birth and then hours after she gave birth, then they took her into surgery and they took her gallbladder out. And so, you know, childbirth is enough, uh, but then surgery on top of that. So Megan had to go through that. Well, when Knox was delivered, there were some complications. And so uh, he wound up in the neonatal ICU. And, um, and it's been just a week of that. He's still in neonatal ICU today. I pray, you know, ask you to pray for Megan and Knox. Um, Megan's a rock star. She is, she's doing great, but she had to go home without her, her son. Um, and so, you know, for us, she has three other children and it's been, you know, baby patrol and watching their kids and making arrangements so that they can get down to the hospital and be with their boy and we can watch the kids. And then we, you know, going there and yesterday was, was, you know, a lot of stuff going on. They actually, they did, uh, over, over, over span of a couple of days, they did four spinal taps on Knox. And so yesterday was, was part of that. And so we were down there and, and, Obviously, I'm pleading my case here because I was, <laughs> I was a little preoccupied. Well, so, so I'm in and I'm with Knox and something's going on. Uh, Brent, they only let one person in at a time. You know, they're really, they're really hot on that and it's a naval hospital so they don't mess around. So, so I'm back there, I'm with Megan and I'm, I'm, I'm actually holding Knox for the first time yesterday. And, and so I've got Knox and all of a sudden I hear Brenda's voice. They've let her in. Wow, that's unusual. What's going on? And I hear Brenda from the other side of the curtain saying in a very concerned voice, Ted, I need to talk to you right away. And, and I, we've been married 30 years and I, I know that voice. I'm thinking, I immediately thought about my dad. I thought, man, something's gone wrong with my dad or something. And so, so I go out there and Brenda looks at me and she said, you had a wedding today. I've been a pastor for 23 years. I have never missed a wedding. I was officiating a wedding where I was scheduled to officiate a wedding for a member of our church, maybe former member, but I don't know, um, in Redlands. And at this point, I was late. 
and I'm in San Diego. So, you know, I had the reaction that you had, my heart just sank and, and all, and so surely my secretary is a, is a magician, and she worked it out, and basically, uh, you know, a good friend, Pastor Scott was scrambling to run up there and, and all, but uh, Pastor Rick said, who's on our board, happened to be 30 minutes away, and she got a hold of him, and Rick went and covered for me and pulled off, and, and you know, the, the, the bride and her husband, they're, they're very, very gracious to me, uh, and so, you know, whew, thank you, Jesus, but, you know, the truth was I had a wedding, the consequences were that... I was a little preoccupied and, and, I, and I missed it. And so we have truth and consequences throughout our lives. Last week, what we saw was the truth and consequences for David. In that God had, had called David and he was running from Saul. You guys, <clears throat> you know the story. Basically, Saul seeking to kill David. If you've missed that, there's 21 weeks of messages, 21 chapters of messages, maybe 30 weeks of messages. You can go online and check it out. But basically, David's on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill David. And David, last week we saw, he ran to the, the house of God. Great first start, David. That's awesome. You're on the run. You run to the house of God. But he responded with lies. And, and we saw the downward spiral of his actions. As last week, we're looking at where he ran to and the actions that followed. And man started great, ran to the house of the Lord, responded though with lies, and then he resorted to begging. He, he reacted in the flesh. And ultimately, he was reduced to humiliation. And this is the way it is with God. There's two, God has plan A and plan B in your life. Let me fix this here. He has plan A and plan B in your life. Plan A is humility. The, the God, God would have you and I to be humble men and women, to live our lives in a humble way. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. And so God wants us to be humble people. Those are the people that he wants to move and work in and through. Those that humble themselves before the Lord. But if you will not humble yourself before the Lord, then he switches to plan B and plan B is humiliation. And you will be humiliated. Now, this isn't because God's going to make you suffer or he wants to punish you. This is because God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. And so he's going to do whatever it takes to get you back on course. And so we saw with David last week, he was reduced to humiliation. He decided he was going to run to Gath, right? Crazy thing. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And David, once he diverted from the path of the Lord and started going down the path of what seemed right to him, I can't imagine that it seemed right to him to take the sword of David or the sword of Goliath that he got from him like the priest and run to Goliath's hometown. And, and there he is thinking that that's going to work out any way but bad for David. But somehow he thinks he can go to Gath, walk in there carrying the sword of the guy whose head he chopped off with it, and the people are going to just, oh, hey, David, great, hey, how are you? Come on in here. Should he be surprised when they instead take him captive, and he now is very much in fear for his life? So what does David resort to? Well, he resorts to being humiliated. He's drooling on his beard. He's faking being crazy and all. And, and so this is, this is certainly what happens with David. Truth and consequences. Truth or consequences. And he diverted from the truth. He suffered the consequences. Now, in Psalm 56, 
we, we learned that in David's humiliation, there when he was taken prisoner in Gath, because that's Psalm 56 in the introduction, tells us that it was written when he was taken prisoner in Gath. We learned there that in David's humiliation, that he cried out to the Lord. That plan B worked, God allowed him to be humiliated, and David there, being in that place of humiliation, he cried out to the Lord, he asked the Lord for mercy, and he resolved to stop trusting in his flesh, and to return to trusting in God. And that's where we pick up the story today. We pick up the story looking at five things that happened to David when he asked God for mercy and when he trusted in the Lord. And and here's the big idea for you today. Some of you maybe have been in the place where it's plan B for you. That you've been humiliated with things that have been going on. Maybe for some of you, you have come here today. Sometimes we get to church just hanging on by a thread, don't we? Sometimes I just, it's just, I come, I mean, metaphorically speaking, I come crawling into church. It's just a miracle of God that I even got here, right? It's right for you. Sometimes you get there. It's like the, the fight start. You wake up, you're fighting in the car. You're, you know, and then you turn in the parking lot and then you put on the big show. Oh, hi. Hey, how y'all doing? You know, and, uh, and, you know, so sometimes, you know, you just get here by the skin of your teeth. So if you're here and you're in that place, here's the deal. Listen, when you cry out for mercy and you just say, Lord, I'm a blow it. Lord, I don't even know why you put up with me, but, but Lord, Give me mercy. Give me grace. And listen, hey, Lord, would you help me to trust you by faith? Listen, if that's you this morning, I want you to see the five things that happened to David here in chapter 22 as he did that. First Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. David therefore departed from there, the there being Gath. He was taken prisoner in Gath. He departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Let's stop right there. That word Adullam is important. In, in, in the literal definition of that word Adullam, maybe you want to circle it nearby, you could write this, write resting place or place of refuge. And that's my first point. When David cried out for mercy from God and when he decided that he was going to walk by faith, David escaped to a place of refuge. See, when he took matters into his own hands, he became a bonded, a prisoner in bondage. But when he cried out to the Lord for mercy, and when he decided to walk by faith, that's when he escaped and found his place of refuge. Now, it's interesting, this cave of Agilom, where it's located, it's actually located in a situation up in the hills that it overlooks the Valley of Elah. What is the Valley of Elah? Do you remember? That's the place that David fought Goliath. See, that's the place that David, man, and you you can just picture David maybe standing at the mouth of that cave, maybe glancing at, gazing over, looking over the valley of Elah, and it would be a very visual reminder for him, hey, this is the place where I'm reminded of God's provision. This is the place where I'm reminded of God's protection. This is the place where I'm reminded of God's power. This is the place where I'm reminded of God's providence, His sovereign working in my life. It's been said the providence of God is when the hand of God is is in the glove of human events. 
that God supernaturally will get his way done. And there David brought to a place of rest, brought to a place of refuge by God, and now having that opportunity to look over and remember, God is large and in charge. God has been here for me all along. And remember, David had been here once before, had he not? When he faced Goliath and everybody told him, you can't fight this giant, this giant will will rip you apart. Everyone's afraid of this giant. And David fought the giant and he went into the battle and refuted everybody else by saying, listen, when I was a boy and I tended my father's sheep and the lion or the bear came to attack me, I fought and I overcame them. Not because I'm so great, but because God is great and he's with me and he empowered me and he protected me. And listen, not only will God protect me in, this, in that situation, but God will protect me in this situation. And so here he is again. And God says, listen, David, I brought you to a place of rest. I brought you to a place where, where, where you can just absolutely have refuge in me. And you can be reminded that I'm faithful in your life. Do you remember what I did there, David? Do you remember how I did this? And we know that God does this incredible work because David, in this place, uh, in this cave, he pours his heart out to the Lord in, in Psalm 142. As a matter of fact, you can turn over there real quickly. It's to the right there. Go to Psalm 142. And the introduction to this psalm is a plea for relief from persecutors, a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. So David here, Having cried out for mercy, having made a a conscious decision that he's going to walk by faith, God brings him to a place of refuge, and in that place of refuge, and in that place of reminder of of his faithfulness to him in the past, listen to what David prays, and these are recorded for us in Psalm 142. He said, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. You've had prayers like that. I've had prayers like that, where you're like, God, it's a train wreck. My, this is going on, and can't you see, and I've got all of this trouble. And this is where David's at. He's just crying out to God. And then he says in verse 3, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path in the way in which I walk. What was his path? What was the way in which he walked? Well, it was at one time according to the flesh, not according to faith. And so when he walked according to the flesh, his path led him to Gath. His his path led him to captivity, to bondage. And he said, you know, you know my way. You knew when I was running away from you into bondage. He says, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. Right? And, 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 and the idea, here he is now in a place of refuge and he knows the contrast. This is the cry of his heart. He says, no one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. My portion in the land of the living, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison 
that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. This is the cry of his heart. It is his prayer, and God answers his prayer because he's asked for mercy, and he's walking according to faith, and now God has brought him out of that bondage, out of that jail, out of that that place of, of persecution and gath. He's now in this refuge of God, and he has an opportunity to remember, hey, God's been faithful. And listen, some of you are in that place today and you need to hear these words. You need to hear that God's faithful and that he offers to you a place of refuge and that his place of refuge is a place where you will have deliverance and you will have that, that, that being set free from the bondages that you're in. God wants you to cry out to him, but it has to be a way of faith. It can't be the work of the flesh. It can't be you trying to engineer your way out of your situations. Jesus was speaking to his disciples in Matthew's gospel and he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now he says interestingly there, take my yoke upon you. The yoke was the thing that you would put on the ox and it secured him. It was his burden to carry so that he could pull the the plow or the cart, or whatever it is that was his responsibility to carry out, his, his duty to do. But that yoke that would go upon the, the oxen, you could not just take any old yoke and put him on it. The yoke was custom made to custom fit the animal that had to bear the burden. You know, God says in his word that he won't give you more than you can handle. Right? We, we know that often as Christians. That's one of the first things we learn. Oh, God promises he won't give me more than I can handle. But we doubt it often as Christians too. We're like, you know, I know God said that, but it, it says there has to be an asterisk in that. You know, he won't give you more than you can handle except for Ted. You know, and, and then him I'll give. And when we go through it, we think this is too much. No, listen, the burden that you have to carry, God knows. And, and he says, look, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Listen, take my yoke. Don't, we take so much on us sometimes that God hasn't prescribed for us to, to handle. That's what I tell Christians often in counseling. It's like they tell me, I feel like God's given me too much. I'm like, well, God won't give you too much, but you will give yourself too much. Are you, are you carrying a burden that, that you should not be carrying? My wife has had often time to counsel women in this where they will, they'll take burdens upon themselves that their husbands should be carrying. And my wife will lovingly tell the wife, listen, that's your husband's burden. You need to, you need to, to, to give that burden to him. You need not to be, you, you know, you're doing, all, you're doing enough, you're doing worrying for your whole family of five. God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, the next thing that happens when David asks God for mercy and trusted by faith, not only does God give him a place of refuge and rest, but David also received encouragement. Again, back for Samuel 22, verse 1, uh, David departed from, from Gath and he escaped to the cave of Agilom. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. David received encouragement. I love when I read this that, that, you know, not only does God provide David that place of rest and refuge, but he also provides him, you know, beyond that, that visual reminder of his faithfulness, he gives him that, that physical support, that physical encouragement by having his family come to him. And I, and I love the fact, too, and I take note of when it says they came down 
to him. They came down to him. Listen, we in the body of Christ, we're a family. I'll tell you, I, you know, let me just start with a question. How many of you in, in the church, in the body of Christ, have had, we sang today how Jesus is closer than a brother. And God gives to us brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. How many of you have had a brother or sister in the body of Christ? You're not, you're not related by, you know, earthly blood, but you're related, related by heavenly blood. How many of you have experienced somebody in the church that came down to you at a time when you had a need and just stuck that close to you? See, I love that. And I love the fact that it's not unique to this body, but it's beautifully present in this body. This is, this is the, the thing that typifies Christians in the body of Christ. The Bible says we're to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment in the law? He says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hinge all the law and the prophets. The whole Bible is summed up, love God, love others. He said, all men will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. And, and I love the fact that we have that in the body of Christ. We have that, I mean, universally. I was, I was, you know, in, in, in um, Banda Aceh when the, the tsunami hit and 100,000 people died in Banda Aceh and we went there as part of a relief and it's a relief team and it's, it's 100% Muslim and they were, they were not happy that Christians were there. Christians couldn't even get there before this thing hit. They were not happy Christians were there and, and we got there and we got on a UN helicopter and we flew to this remote place. We got off the helicopter. We had no idea where we were going to go. No place to stay, surrounded by hostile Muslims. And there we had other Christians that we ran into that were like, hey, how's it going? And instantaneously it was like, brother. And we need those brothers. We need to have those brothers, those sisters that will come down to us because there's times when we're down. When we're down, when we need people to come to us. You know, my, my daughter being in the, in the hospital and people just, you know texting us, you know, emailing us, we're praying for you, Facebook message, you know, we had a gal come, she calls my daughter yesterday, she's like, I'll be at your house on this day to clean it and to make you dinner, my daughter was chuckling, she's like, she didn't ask me if, if, if she could, she said, I'll be there on this day, you know, um, just, you know, people coming down, and that's what we need to be for one another, those that are willing to come down, and David receives this, here's what you got to get, when he cried out to the Lord for mercy, and when he says, I'm going to walk by faith, well, now he receives this encouragement. It's just so beautiful. Um, I had these verses. I was going to throw them up on the screen, but I'm not going to do that. i just paraphrase it. Basically, Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, he was talking about, you know, what's going to happen at the last days, the, the, really he's describing the great white throne judgment. And he says there's going to be all kinds of people assembled there, and he's going to, he's going to separate them on the right and on the left. And he's going to say to one group of people, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came to me. And, and basically, they're, they're all going to say to him, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or poor or whatever? And he says, in so, in so much as you've done this to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And that's what God calls us to do, just to be those people who will, who will give encouragement, who will love in this way. We come to the Lord and we're asking for mercy, we're trusting in God, and he gives us family. And maybe you're here today and you haven't experienced that. Maybe you don't have that. Maybe you don't know that. 
And I would say to you that in the body of Christ, there's family. And if you'll just come and give your life to the Lord, and if you will commit just to plugging into the body of Christ, you have no idea of what family that you're going to have, what love you're going to have, and the people that are going to come down to you and care for you. Well, the third thing we see here is not only does God give to David escape to refuge and to rest, not only does uh, David uh, receive encouragement, but thirdly, we see that David elicited followers. When he, when he, when he gave his heart to the, to the Lord and trusted in the Lord by faith, he elicited followers. Verse 2, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was disconnected gathered to him, so he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. And then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. I love that picture because it, it, it completely unveils David's heart. I'm trusting in the Lord. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know that Saul, I mean, it's like the mob, man. They aren't just going to kill me. They're going to kill my whole family. And so he's, I'm seeing what Saul's all about, and I got to make sure my family's protected. And so David here, he's just going to the, to the king of Moab, just trying to find a place outside of Saul's territory where he can make sure his family's hidden away. And his attitude is, hey, I don't know what God's going to do. God's going to do something, and I know he's going to do something for me, but I have no idea what it is, so I'm going to do everything I can to protect my family. Beautiful picture of his heart here. Verse 4, So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And so David departed, and he went into the forest of of Hereth. Verse 6, When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand. That's biblical code up to this point for us to understand that Saul is completely given over to the rage of the flesh. He is not being led by the spirit whatsoever. Every time he's got a spear in his hand, he's being controlled by his flesh and he wants to kill somebody. And so this is where he's at. And all his servants standing around him. And then verse 7, Saul said to his servants uh, who stood around him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Is, is this what, what, you know, what David is going to give to you? And, and so the, the thing here is that David elicited followers. Now, that word elicit, it, it, in the dictionary, it means to draw forth or to bring out. Here's what the idea is. The idea is to inspire. And so the, the, the thing here is, now, unlike Saul, Saul, he solicits followers, right? But, but rather, rather than soliciting followers, what is it that, that, that David does? He, he elicits them. He, he's a guy that inspires people. You see, because what happens here, 
Well, solicit has in mind a sales pitch. It has in mind politics. It has in mind, you know, butt kissing and baby kissing, you know. And, and this is, you know, Saul is talking to these guys. You see him there in, in verse 7. He's telling all of these Benjamites, he says, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and so on? And basically he's saying, is, is he going to give you a job? Is he going to give you a position? Is he going to give you wealth? I can give you all of these things. Vote for me. That's, that's the attitude. He is trying to solicit followers. David, rather, he elicits followers. He just inspires people to follow him. Now, who is David inspiring? Take a look there. Who does he inspire? Well, verse 2 tells us, everybody who was in distress, who was in debt, and who was disconnected. In distress, in debt, and disconnected. And that word distress sums it up. In the Hebrew, it means literally bitter of soul. You're like, ah, you know, he got 400 of these guys. I'm not so sure I got the cream of the crop. Why, why, why am I, why am I insp- eliciting these kind of followers? Here's why. It's important. Because they, being in their distress and being in their debt and being disconnected, they see somebody else who's in distress and in debt and disconnected. And they say, you know what? I just am completely in bitterness of soul. And yet here's a man who's gone through everything that I've gone through. And yet he trusts in God. And it's an amazing thing. And because he trusts in God, what happens? What does David offer these people? Listen, he offers them hope. He offers them hope. Because he himself is hoping and trusting in God. It's an incredible thing that the people who have problems see somebody else with problems and yet they see somebody who's persevering. They see a man who hasn't lost his faith, a man who who is like them in these things, but yet he trusts in God. And listen, Christian, you Christian fathers, mothers, friends, neighbors, co-workers, listen, you need to live your life in such a way that the people around you can see, hey, that you are being faithful. That you're being faithful. I remember the story told about a, a congressman that went to go see Mother Teresa. as a congressman or a senator, and he went to there in Calcutta when she was there, and there was a place called the House of the Dying. And here she was ministering to people who were terminally ill. And the, and the place was just overwhelmingly packed. There were lines of people down the street. And this man walked in, overwhelmed, and he said to her, how can you possibly hope to be successful in your efforts when you're, you're so overwhelmed? And she said, my good man, I haven't been called to be successful. I've been called to be faithful. Listen, God's called you and me to be faithful as well. I've, I've told the story before, you've probably heard it, but man, I, I used to work with a guy named Roger and he did not know the Lord. And yet, you know, because, you know, we worked together there at the fire department and he knew that I was, you know, a Christian pastor and, you know, pastoring in a church and all. And he would come to the church, but, but every Sunday he wouldn't, he wouldn't surrender his life to the Lord. I talked to him after every service. Hey, you ready to give your life to the Lord? No, I'm not. But we needed some work done. We needed some tractor work done down at our property and some weed abatement. He had a tractor. He's like, oh, I'll do it for you. 
And so he came out, he was doing it, and I went, I went down to bring him lunch. Now at this point, I had just left the fire department, I had just come on full-time at the church in order to do it. I had, you know, cashed out my retirement and basically brought my cost of living as low as I could possibly get so the church could afford me. And part of that was I didn't own a car. Tell you how, how bad it was, my single mother sister-in-law loaned me a car. Okay, so you know it's bad when you're driving a single mom's, you know, loner, right? And so this thing, I was grateful for it, but it was a pile and it had no air conditioning and it's like August and I go out there to bring this guy lunch and he's got a flat tire on his tractor and uh, he's, he's used the tractor to kind of jack the thing up, take the tire off. I get there, he's sitting on the, 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 the wheel I'm like, bummer, what's going on? Oh, I got a flat, but hey, if you give me a ride, you know, to my house in, in Hemet, I, I got a spare there, we can put it on. I'm like, okay, yeah, get in the car, I got you some lunch. Now, now, I mean, it's August, I got no air conditioning, I got the windows down, I am sweating like Mike Tyson in the spelling bee, you know, just beat red, and he's there, and he gets in this car, and he looks over at me, and he's like, I want what you've got. He actually said the words. I just started laughing. I'm like looking in the mirror. I'm looking at myself. You know, I'm like, do you, do you know what I've got? I go, I go, what do I possibly have that you could want? He goes, you've got, I don't know, man. You're happy. You got joy. You got peace. I said, Roger, what I've got that you need is Jesus. We promptly ran out of gas, and it took us, you know, several hours to go. It was God made sure we spent a long time together. But the end of that story is we got back to that property and in that dirt, he knelt to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. First guy that ever did work at what is now Revival Christian Fellowship got saved on, in his knees in the dirt there. And God doing this incredible work. And here's the thing, he didn't see in me a guy who had it all together because I didn't and I don't. He saw a guy who was just like him. You know, in distress, in debt, disconnected. But you know what? I know the one that I can turn to. And see, that's what happens here. That's what these, that's what these men see in David. He cried out for God's mercy, and he's trusting him by faith. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, it's been said, you're the only gospel that some people will ever read. The world is desperate for hope. Well, the fourth thing we see here, when David asked the Lord for mercy and trusted in faith, not only did he escape to a place of refuge and rest, not only did he receive encouragement, not only did he elicit followers, but fourthly, David's ear was tuned to the Lord. Back up, look at verse 5. We read there that the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart Uh, And go to the land of Judah. And so David departed and he went into the forest of Hereth. Now, here is the situation. I mean, we have David, because he's cried out for mercy and because he's walking by faith, he has an ear to listen to the Lord. He's not listening to his flesh. And that's a big distinction because for so often what we see, Saul's interaction with the prophets isn't a good one. He's constantly at odds with the prophets. And the reason for that is, is because Saul resisted the word of the Lord. And the reason why David, it would be so easy for him here to resist the word of the Lord is because it's completely contrary to human wisdom. See, because what Gad is telling him is leave this place of refuge 
that, that, that has gotten you away from Saul and go back into Saul's enemy-held territory. Go back into Judah. That's what he's telling him to do. And you or I, if we got that instruction, we might go, dude, you've been smoking pot, man. You were, you were high as a kite. I'm not going to do that. That does not make sense. But listen, David, because he's asked the Lord for mercy, because he's looking to the Lord by faith, he's got now his ear tuned to the Lord. So when the Lord's command comes to him that is contrary to all human wisdom, David's in a place to be able to hear from the Lord. Now, he doesn't know it now. He just trusts that God knows what he's talking about when the prophet's telling him to do this. And so he obeys and he does it. But what we'll find out in the next chapter is that God knew exactly what he's doing. Among other things, what's going to happen in the next chapter is that the Philistines are going to uh, attack the city of Keilah. And that's in Judah-held territory, you know, territory in Judah. And, and so that's a place where Saul, as the king, would have responsibility to protect them. But Saul's shucking his respose, man. He's not focusing on those responsibilities because he's too focused on trying to kill David. And so his, all of his focus is on the wrong thing, and he's just going to leave those people hung out to dry. And what God is doing is he's getting a hold of the heart and the mind of the man who's going to replace Saul, who has got the responsibility to be king over, the, over these people, and to govern and to shepherd them and to watch over them. And he's mobilizing him, and he's moving him into, into a place geographically where he can do something about it. And, and, you know, for us, when God asks us to do things that don't make sense, his ways aren't our ways. We have to trust by faith that God knows what he's doing and that he's, he's going to be doing these things. So, yeah, I mean, David might well have gone, well, gosh, I'm safe here. I should stay here. But thankfully, David listens to the Lord. It's been said a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships were made for. Right? And David wasn't made to sit in safety. John Trapp, who was the 15th century uh, Puritan, he said this, God is a pure act, and he willeth that all of his people should be active and run with patience the race that is set before them. Again, I want you to keep in mind what brought David to this point. He was at his lowest point when he trusted in the flesh, but he's asked God for mercy, and he's renewed his faith in him. You know, so often when we're in that place where David is, we're at our lowest point, we have a tendency to circle the wagons, don't we? We have a tendency just to circle the wagons and have a pity party and go, well, woe is me, and here I am. And we don't have a mind or a heart to look out for other people or even to consider other people. I remember a situation where my dad was in the hospital. He had a heart attack. I was concerned about him. And you, you might imagine in that situation that he gets all your attention. He gets all your focus. And you might also imagine that your attitude might be, I don't care what else is going on, I'm just, this is, I'm, you know, this is going to get my time and my attention. And I remember I'm there in his hospital room, and, uh, you know, after he'd come out of the procedure, and he's in a shared room, and I'm visiting him, it's my mom, my dad, me, and I'm talking to my dad, and I overhear this guy, you know, on the other side, I mean, he can't help but hear, he's on the other side of the curtain, and he's talking to somebody, and it's, it's very apparent Number one, that he's not saved. Number two, that he's got a, a serious substance abuse problem that's caused him, you know, profound health issues. And number three, that he's got, he recognizes because of his latest health crisis that, uh, yeah, I guess I really do need to do something about this. But he didn't have the foggiest idea what he was going to do. 
and he was talking to the person on the other phone going, well, I suppose I need some help, but I don't know exactly how I'm going to go about doing that kind of thing. So I overhear this whole thing, but I'm focused on my dad. So, so you know, we finish our visit, and Dad, I love you, and I'll, I'll see you later. I got to get on the road, get home. And so I'm heading down the hallway, and the Lord is just screaming at me. Pastor Ted. <laughs> and, man, I got, I, I, I'm waiting for the elevator. The door's open, and I'm like, I cannot get in the elevator. I walk back, and I come walking in the room. My mom's there. She brightens up. She's like, oh, hi. Not here to see you, Mom. <laughs> So I go over, talk to this brother, and it turned into just a great providential time just for me to, you know, just to see him and to minister to him. And man, and thank you, Jesus, that my ear was turn, turned and tuned to the Lord. And listen, for you, if you will trust the Lord and just say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. Lord, I want to walk by faith. And you have your ear open to him. He'll use you to do amazing things. Well, My fifth and final point here is that David didn't make excuses. David did not make excuses. We'll pick it up there. Uh, For context, we'll pick it up in verse 7. It says, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, he's like, you know, hey, you going to give me, you you know, is is David going to give you, you know, fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands, captains of hundreds? Verse 8, all of you have conspired against me and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And then answered Doeg the, the Edomite. Now you, you guys remember Doeg the, the Edomite, we, rec- we met him last chapter. He's not a, he's not a godly man. Uh, he's a servant for Saul and he's a bad dude and we're going to see just how bad here. Doeg the Edomite answered him, who was set over the servants of Saul, and he said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. See, you know, what he's doing, he's saying, look, this guy, he sold you out. I saw it with my own two two eyes, man. And so the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all of his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of the Lord for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Now, he hasn't done any of this stuff. It looks bad because David did go to him. And David lied to him about his intention for being there. And Doeg is connecting the dots incorrectly and going, they're in cahoots together and this guy's out to get you and he supports him. This poor priest doesn't have a clue. And all that, all that he knows at this point, he doesn't know about the conflict between Saul and David. All he knows of David is, hey, this is the commander of your forces. This is your son-in-law. This is the guy who's been loyal to you, right? And so this is where he's come, coming from. And so we continue, he says, um, uh, where did I leave off? Uh, verse 14, so Ahimelech answered the king, and he said, and who amongst all your servants is it, did I skip some verses here now? Uh, okay, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding, and is honorable in your house? Now, horrible things to say to a guy that wants to kill him, 
But again, he doesn't have a clue because David has lied to him, put him in a very bad situation. Verse 15, he says, Did I then inquire of, the, of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the, the king impute anything uh, to his servant or to any in the house of my father, uh, for your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. I didn't have a clue about any of this stuff. I'm not in cahoots with the guy. And the king, this is Saul speaking, said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me, but the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Because this was a very unholy act. This was a horrible act. If, if Saul had did nothing else up until this point, this act was enough for God to say, you're not going to be king anymore and, and to strike him dead. So Saul's asked these guys to do a horrible thing. They're like, I'm not killing a priest, right? And so they defy the orders of the king to honor our king. And the, the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. And he, he was more than happy to oblige. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and he struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen, linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he, Doeg, struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now here's the irony. Saul, when God himself asked him to do such a thing to, the, to God's enemies, to put to death you know, everyone, he was unwilling to, to do it. But here now, God, Saul has no problem taking God's priests and everybody in the, in the city and doing the same thing. And, and he has no problem doing that. How, you know, far he is in the flesh. Verse 20, now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and he fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. And so David said to Abathar, I knew that day. When Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Now, here's the thing. In truth, this was a fulfillment of prophecy that was given to Eli. You remember Eli earlier in, in this book had been, you know, had sons that were very unfaithful and he'd allowed it and God had given Eli a prophecy and said, you know what, you, the, the, you're your family's not going to continue to be the priests uh, over, over this, this nation because of your sin. And so it's really a fulfillment of a prophecy. But nevertheless, the way it came to being is because of what David says. He did cause the death of, this whole th- of his whole family because he lied and he, and he handled things so poorly in chapter 21. So he says, I, I've caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Verse 23, stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but you, but rather with me, you shall be safe. Listen, David didn't make excuses. That's the point here, is that David, man, we saw when he ran to the house of God and when he responded with lies, man, those lies now have caught up to him. His ways of the flesh, have, have, he's paid a horrible price for it. 
And, and here now we see a different David. We see a repentant David. We see a David who has asked the Lord for mercy. And we see a David who has renewed his faith in God. And the evidence of that is that David now accepts his responsibility for his own sin. I've caused this. Here's the point of application for us in this. Listen, I just ask you bluntly. And I ask you to take a walk with this. What excuses are you making? Because if you have a desire really to, to cry out to the Lord for mercy, and if you have a desire to truly say, you know what, I've tried it in the flesh, and it hasn't worked out so well, and so Lord, I'm going to trust you by faith. Listen, then what that means is that you've got to quit making excuses. And if there's stuff that you need to take responsibility for, well, then you need to take responsibility for it. I think that's a word for some of you here today. Man, what, what excuses are you making and what do you need to accept responsibility for? I'd ask you to kind of take a walk with that this week. Here's what I want to leave you with. I want you to consider the picture and the typology that we have in this whole story. It's an amazing thing to think about. Because we have Saul, the one who was rejected by God for his rebellion. We have David, the king who was rejected by men. We have those who are in distress and who are in debt, who are disconnected, that are desperate for a leader to follow. We have David who takes the blame upon himself and he tells Abathar, you'll be safe with me. Listen, that's a picture of the gospel. Satan, the ruler of this world, rebelled against the, against the Lord. And God sent his son, the person of the work of Jesus Christ, pay the penalty for our sin. And he was rejected by men. And all of us, you and me, we fit into that group that we come indebted and disconnected and absolutely destitute, dejected. But we come and we see in the Lord someone who himself was despised and rejected. but he gave his life for us. And we can find salvation in him. This chapter is such a beautiful picture of our Lord and David being a type of, uh, a typology there, a picture of Christ. And I would ask you now today as we close in prayer just to take a walk with this whole thing. Because we can live in rebellion and we can live a life of lies that has as its reward heartache and pain great consequence or in a moment's notice we can turn to God and we can say I'm going to ask you for mercy I'm going to ask you for grace I'm going to ask you to give me faith to trust in you and I can watch Lord as you lead me out of bondage and into a place of security